Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin, along with Teos Abadia, who I am now able to speak to after his brush with uh, almost a week without electricity. Did I try to have too much power? Perhaps. And then I had none. <laughs> yes, you have to hold on loosely. That's right. We have restored yes. power to the household. We're all warm and toasty. I can wear just a long sleeve shirt again, and I'm ready to record. All right, let's do this. I'm glad I get to talk to my friend Teos. I didn't realize how much I missed our weekly <laughs> talks you. until we had to postpone it for three days. Likewise. Yeah. So let's jump right into some news. The first news coming from Roll20 and the OR group that talks about play numbers on Roll20. And for quarter three of 2020, their play numbers were pretty astounding. Yeah. D&D is maybe played a bit, Sean. Yeah, it's I it's it's um wormed its way into just regular media now. My wife came running to me excitedly with a sort of a news magazine that we get a weekly news magazine and she's like, "Look, look." And it there was a story specifically about people flocking to play D&D uh in this COVID life that we are living yeah. and how much online play is up and how people are uh enjoying the hobby. And so that was just yesterday. So this did not surprise me when I saw this news about how uh, how not only is play increasing over one or over 100 million people total play hours were logged in roll 20 for quarter three. Uh, that's huge, obviously. It's tremendous. And and they're, they're so, it's so interesting to see a, a couple things. So one is that, you know, the org group writes up this the, these uh, results and they they talk about you know what are the what are the sort of movements here and 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 I think they literally have gotten bored of talking about D's growth yeah so they just try to find other things to talk about to make it a, a different story but I mean 53.26 percent is just amazing yeah um, but they did so they, they talk about these other you know what else is in, in the list and on the, kind of on the big graphic that was shared it's D D then it's uncategorized which is 14 percent that's sort of everything that didn't get named uh or doesn't register on these lists then they had call of cthulhu which we've seen being strong in a number of different measures um whether it's the uh what do you call it icv2 right Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ratings, um, or you know, reports of international play. Call of Cthulhu is clearly very strong. Mm -hmm. um, maybe strong, probably stronger than these numbers suggest. Maybe. Uh, mm -hmm. Then it's Pathfinder, but that drops down from eleven percent to Call of Cthulhu to three percent to Pathfinder. Yeah, and um, and what I'm looking at here is Pathfinder at three percent. Then the next thing is Pathfinder Second Edition at about two percent. So. About half, going by these numbers, about half the people that play Pathfinder are using the second edition rules. Most of them have stuck with the previous edition. Yeah, that's that's not great. Um, it, it, it's worse than it was during 4E, right, for, for D&D. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By, by, yes, exponentially. And when you figure... Two two times the number of people are playing Call of Cthulhu than are playing either Pathfinder or Second Edition Pathfinder, um, is um, is yeah, it's quite the change. Yeah, quite the change. It is. Um, and then you have uh, Warhammer, 
and then you have so, so it's like you know all the different types then you have world of darkness then D and D three point five, which is its own category at one percent, mm-hmm. and then you get below one percent. You have Starfinder, Star Wars, and then everything else is eleven percent if you lump it together, which tells you how. But if you look at the full list, there are just there are tons and tons of games in this other games category yeah. that are all under one percent. And if you just think of all the big kickstarters you've heard of, or the new RPGs that are super interesting and have you know star power attached to them or anything, those are all in this other games category. Mm-hmm. And and that's really really interesting that the shadow that D and D has, which is both good at times and also can be blinding. Right, it can keep people from trying out new games and, sure. and advancing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting that one of the notes in here is that if you lump together all of the powered by the apocalypse games, including like Dungeon World, Monster of the Week, Blades in the Dark, and so on, that comes in above Warhammer, uh, just below Pathfinder Second Edition. Which I'm, I'm sort of surprised at. I mean, I I love that system and what you can do with it. Uh, I didn't think it would be that high, and there it is. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, another thing that caught my eye was they talked about a national growth, which I don't think they've reported on before. And they talked about the Portuguese when they were looking at the the systems where they saw the largest increase in play mm-hmm. from one quarter to the next, from Q2 to Q3. Uh, the Portuguese RPG Tormenta grew 26% since last quarter. And the Japanese multi-setting horror RPG Insane, the S-A-N is capitalized, uh, also showed strong growth. And this talks to Roll20's popularity globally mm-hmm. uh, and how the market is, is becoming more international. Um, that, that you know the biggest growth isn't some small US Kickstarter we've heard of, but it's this new game in Portugal, it's this new game, or actually it's in Brazil, I'm not sure if it's which Portuguese it is, mm-hmm. uh, or that it's a game in Japan, right? And so that is a very interesting thing. Other games that showed big growth were Star Trek Adventures, Call of mm-hmm. Cthulhu, and Delta Green. Nice. Yeah, so interesting, an interesting look in sort of both the business side of things as well as just the overall popularity of the hobby uh, continuing yeah. to grow. And Sean, I can't, I can never give this up. <laughs> so everybody has to forgive me. But I always look at where 4E is, because we talk about 4E often. Uh, I, I don't do this, but a lot of people will say that 4E was a failure, and 4E continues to be on this list all these years later. Played more than many games we think of as being strong games, right? Yeah. Uh, Cipher System is an awesome system of games. Thirteenth Age, Cyberpunk, Star Trek Adventures, right? Whether it's old, new. Uh, D&D 4E is still seeing more play on these systems than those games. And that tells you a lot about both how popular and successful that game was just as a plain old game mm-hmm. um, to have that kind of enduring play, but but also that, that, that you know, D&D just has this huge presence. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully a huger presence soon as more news from the D&D movie is released. The Hollywood Reporter and ComicBook.com both report that Bridgerton star Regine Page has been cast in the movie along with Chris Pine, Michelle Rodriguez, and Justice Smith. Did you watch Bridgerton, Sean? I did not. That is one that I have not gotten to yet. It's in many ways a lovely show. And we could literally have an episode here. I think about the lessons of, of Bridgerton for like a, a campaign or a okay. world setting. 
uh, because it's fascinating the things they choose to do and do really well, and then the things they don't choose to change about their depiction of society and how horrible it is and how terribly it plays. But overall, I really enjoyed it. And I mean, one of the bright points is just Paige is, is uh, so charismatic. Right? Talk about introducing a comeliness stat. I mean, Paige is just like, you can't help but go, yeah. You're amazing. <laughs> and so now he's going to be in the D&D movie, and, and that can only mean good things because he, yeah. he has a, a great look, a great way of communicating and working through scenes. So nice. uh, I think everybody's excited to do that. Yeah. To see how he's doing. With, with this news, I will move it up on my list of, of shows to watch. <laughs> And we're going to check in with D&D Beyond because the last time we talked, they had lost several employees of, of the public facing uh, and leadership ilk. And so we were wondering what's going on. Well, we started to get some news about that. You want to share that with us? Yeah. Todd Kenrick revealed that he is Codename Entertainment's new creative manager. Uh, Codename Entertainment is a video game company. We, as D&D fans, you probably know them best from their work on Idle Champions, which is the uh, video game. Uh, he's also launching his own YouTube channel and has started doing some pretty neat interviews there in his, in his typical Todd Kendrick awesome style. Mm -hmm. um, we also heard from Lauren Urban. She is the community manager for Codename Entertainment, so it's, it's cool. They're both able to work uh, with the same company mm -hmm. uh, again. Um, D&D Beyond has also, you know, and it's hard to read between the tea leaves, but, but mm. there has been a barrage of information from D&D Beyond that sort of says, life is carrying on, totally fine, no reason to be worried. Uh, one of which was to announce that their Dragon Prince RPG that uses the Cortex system based on the popular Netflix animated show that my family and I love, uh, now has a free playtest. So you can go to Tale of Exadia, uh, X-A-D-I-A dot com, and it's either as a web format or you can download it as a PDF and you've got the playtest there. Um, the other thing they did is they've had Adam Bradford, who you know is a VP, uh, and this is not atypical for how this works, has, not, has announced he's leaving, but then has remained on uh, doing a number of his videos that he's well known for doing but bringing in additional replacement team members mm -hmm. to kind of, again, communicate that everything is fine. Look, we have a plan. You're yeah. in good hands. Don't freak out. Right. Uh, clearly those kinds of events, right? And, and, and I actually had a lot of fun watching how Adam handles these because they remind me of various corporate takeover buyout situations that I've been a part of and things right. that I've watched, you know, my friends who were VPs or whatever do. Um, so it's, it's quite amusing to watch it. Uh, but so he uh, introduced two videos ago. And then again, in this last video, Joe Starr, who's leading the development updates, uh, introduced VP of engineering, Dave Hartless, senior software engineer, Danny Sadenko. Sadenko. Uh, clearly this kind of call to, to show us that things are moving forward and, and that it's sort of an amicable way that Adam is leaving. But I think, you know, it keep coming up on Twitter, people saying, Hey, D and D beyond, why did so many good people leave? And I think D and D beyond will have to continue to work to, to prove that everything's okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's business, business as usual. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, and I don't want to be uh, just fatalistic about it because because it, it it 
it's not great, right? That this is a very bad thing in our society that companies often have, I don't know if this is the case in this for D and D beyond, but you know, we, we shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. Right. Right. Yeah. If it is what we're thinking it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, on the new book release, MT Black has decided to experiment with the way he releases books with the book of wondrous magic for fifth edition. Uh, he is releasing it instead of on the DMs Guild on Drive Through RPG. Uh, it's three ninety five, containing one hundred new magic items, and after only one week, it is approaching platinum bestseller. So, looks like it worked out pretty well for <laughs> for Mister Black. I want to experiment like MT experiments. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could experiment like that. So, this yeah, is significant, right? I mean, it's it a is big deal, right? Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but uh, if you release stuff on the DMs Guild, it has to be you know fifth edition D and D, and you can use the IP of Wizards of the Coast or some of their IP that they have they have uh, allowed. So that's good. However, you are paying a twenty percent rate to use that essentially. Um, uh, drive through who, which owns the DMs Guild gets 30%. Wizards of the Coast gets 20%. So you're giving away 50% of your uh, royalties right there. On the drive through, you still are giving 30% to, to uh, drive through RPG, but you're not giving that 20% to Wizards. And you retain your, your own IP if you are doing the uh, open gaming license for 5e. Drive through RPG as opposed to uh, DMs Guild has better tools for analysis and marketing. And the DMs Guild, uh, as Teos notes, has be become very, very competitive. It is very hard to get your work recognized amongst the hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of offerings that are already there. Yeah, Empty Black calls it in a recent blog post uh, about his choice. He, he calls it a graphic design arms race towards presentation. And what he points out is that this just vastly increases your cost. If you think of how much a, a DM, DM's Guild uh, title will make, your average one, it's not that much money, right? Even if you hit platinum, we're, we're not talking about a ton of money. And if you start paying, you know, three bucks for a cover and a hundred dollars for this art and a hundred dollars for that art, that platinum take becomes very small. Mm -hmm. uh, very quickly, right? Because it takes a lot of $3 sales to equal the price of a $300 cover. It takes, <laughs> yeah. if my math is right. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's rough. And, and as things have gotten so tight, you would want your sales to increase, but they're not, your, your chances are actually worse now than they were. And, and it's something that I think a lot of people are mulling over. I think the DMs Guild is trying to address that, but in the end, it's just, you know, you look at these lists of, of, of who's doing well and, and, and how well they're doing. And it's not super comforting to me. Whereas I think there was a sweet spot back maybe a year and a half ago where the DMs guilt felt like, okay, if I, if I get a decent cover and I have a good idea, I'm going to see some great sales. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like you can't take that for granted now. Yeah. Um, and then when you, where you're in that situation, and I think this is what empty black and others are looking at is that when you're in that situation of having to put so much in, well, what else can I do? And, and what drive through does is it gives you a whole bunch of analysis and marketing tools. And, and uh, Sly Flourish had a Twitch stream on this recently, 
um, about a week ago, if people are interested, very valuable, where he walks through that he can share in a tweet uh, one of his books on drive through and he can follow that particular tweet and see how it leads to sales mm -hmm. through drive throughs tools. Um, and then he can do another one via an email and he, so he can compare all of this. And, I, and Empty Black is that kind of smart, just like Mike Shea, to be looking at these things. And so he is using all of these tools, plus he's retaining ownership so he can sell it in other ways. And I can only imagine that Empty's experiment will lead to some really interesting things down the road for him. So yeah, very yeah. cool to see. He also talked about how printing is easier. Um, and he could use a simpler kind of low art style that was both cheaper and more functional and easier for printing without worrying about that competitive edge. So this is a, a very interesting development, and I'll certainly be watching it closely. Yep. And another interesting development is WizKids offering replacements for broken minis. You, you, you're our mini man, Teos. Uh, <laughs> what's going on? Saying that. What's going I've on been, with this? I've been working out, though. Uh, so... You know, what really showed up first was these reports, multiple reports of the premium white dragon uh, that's part of the Rime of the Frost Maiden series, Arviatris, showing up in boxes half painted and with broken claws or other parts. Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of something that's very surprising is on the very popular forum for minisgallery.com, WizKids actually posted explaining that the mistake was that they used a near final prototype somehow by mistake as the factory's master reference that didn't have all the painting. So they literally made them based on that mm. incorrectly. That doesn't explain the broken parts, but they say they've added new quality control measures and that's good. But I've seen this a number of times. I have a Sapphire Dragon that came with a broken wing. I was fortunate enough to get uh, the company that I bought it from to pay for the shipping of it and replace it. And that one broke literally sitting on my shelf. No pressure applied. Wow. Um, so I would call that, I mean, two things don't make a, a true data line, but I would say that this is probably an issue with the figgy, with the figure and how it's made and the material of it. It's a more brittle plastic. And I just opened a case of Fanny Talon minis. That's 32 boxes. And I had six boxes with broken minis. And that's higher than I've ever had before. So that's a problem WizKids will hopefully look at. They have a replacement policy, but their policy is that you must mail in your mini. So if you have a common or uncommon mini, it's literally not used, worth it. You know, you're mm -hmm. better off just buying a new one. And if it's a very expensive one, the problem is they don't guarantee a replacement because they could be out of it. So you have to both pay shipping and hope they have a replacement. Oof. With this white dragon, customers from Canada, Australia, and Switzerland weighed in on this forum to say, Shipping is not cheap. Even the Canadian customer said shipping insurance was $80 Canadian and the figure costs 120 Canadian. So yeah. you already paid 120. You're going to pay another 80 to get it fixed. Yeah. So I wonder whether WizKids, you know, will maybe look at changing this policy uh, for D&D. For those that don't know, if your core books are damaged or any of your books that Wizards makes are damaged, you can send them a picture of it and they send you a new book. So you yep. don't pay those shipping costs, they cover it. That's an amazing policy, right? Um, so we'll see what happens here. And my dream would be that they just start changing the mix of plastics. I'm sure that's a big cost angle, but there's just a lot of broken minis and that's, yeah. that's a problem. If you want to turn uh, the white dragon into a zombie dragon, <laughs> you're you know half painted, broken up, yeah. That's that's what people are discussing on the forum is how to repaint it themselves yeah. because they don't want to pay the cost to ship it. Yeah. Oh, that's uh. Oh, 
And the last thing yeah. I'd say is that also WizKids said that because of being uh, production issues, they will not get your replacement mini until June at the earliest. So, wow. Yeah. All right. So play your uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden campaign very slowly so you can get your dragon in. Exactly. Well, they do make two white dragons, so you could use the other one. But I mean, okay. yeah, that doesn't help if you just plunk down a big amount of money, yep. especially internationally. True. But on to happier topics like the last monk subclass from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything that we are going to review. It is the monk subclass known as the Way of the Astral Self, where you are an illusion. Your true self is on the astral plane. I've been telling people that for so long. Exactly. Exactly. So let's delve into the Way of the Astral Self, starting at third level. As a bonus action, you can spend one key point to summon the arms of your astral self. When you do so, each creature of your choice that you can see within 10 feet of you must succeed on a deck saving throw or take force damage equal to two rolls of your martial arts die. So you're summoning it and basically slapping everybody within 10 feet of you in the head with your new astral arms. That's what I would do as well. Yeah, um, I can imagine that they probably played with a version where you summoned another like duplicate of yourself and that was problematic. So then they're like, what if just extra arms? Yeah, yeah, I remember I remember this. I remember talking about this as a play test. I don't remember if that this was the fine, you know, if that's what they were doing back then or not. But I sort of like I sort of like this, right? Because <laughs> these arms last for 10 minutes. And they hover near your shoulders or surround uh, your your actual arms, your choice. And then you can say what these arms look like, and they vanish early if you are incapacitated or if you die. Yeah, it's it's sort of a weird visual. Um, not sure I love it, but but I could probably throw to love it. Yeah, I I see. And, I think it's cool. Yeah, having these two extra arms. Yeah, and I usually do advocate that D and D should have more weird stuff. So I think I just have to say I like it. Okay, there you go. I am pro weird stuff. I you like are, it. We have we have come down pro weird here on Mastering weird. Dungeons. Um, while you have your spectral arms, you gain the following benefits. Uh, instead of your strength modifier for strength checks and strength saving throws, you use your wisdom modifier. Your spectral arms can make unarmed strikes. Not only can they make those unarmed strikes, but they have a reach five feet greater than your normal reach. And those strikes made with your arms uh, can use your wisdom modifier instead of your strength or dexterity modifier for attack and damage rolls, and you do force damage with those attacks. That's a whole bunch of powerful good stuff. Mm -hmm. um, now, at low levels, it doesn't last very long. Uh, a lot of it depends on your campaign adventure type, but yeah. um, because one of the things is, well, can I just give up not putting points in strength, right? And or even yeah. decks, you know, could I go mostly wisdom? Mm -hmm. um, but but at low levels, that's a little bit hard. Later on, it would be fairly easy. So it's an interesting thing to... Yeah. 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 So it, it bear, does bear keeping in mind that if you make any other attacks, though, with if, right. unless you're using these arms, you are using strength or decks as normal. So um, trying to min-max that can be... Uh, problematic if you if you are you know one of those who takes it right down to the level and tries to figure out your best option at every single level and it does say can so mm -hmm. you can you could choose to do strength decks if that's higher true yeah it's, it's yeah. tough it's one of those where i wonder if i were designing a pc you know 
Mm-hmm. Would it help? Would this help me? I don't know right. if it would. Yeah. Uh, at level six, you get a visage of the astral self. Uh, you can summon a visage of your astral self. Imagine that as a bonus action or as part of the bonus action you take to activate the arms. You can spend one key point uh, to summon this visage for 10 minutes. This visage covers your face like a helmet or mask. You determine its appearance. While the uh, visage is there, you gain the following benefits. Astral sight. You can see normally in darkness, uh, both magical and non-magical, to a distance of 120 feet. Huh. Is Tasha allergic to darkness? Because every yeah. cl- right, right, every class now has a see in darkness subclass, which scares me. Because oh my god, I having every optimization group yep. is going to think about this. And- yep, every battle now takes place in total darkness, and you better hope your monsters have a way of getting around it. Uh, you also have advantage. This on- is, I mean, this is magical too, right? So this is right. the true devil sight. Like we're yep. out of the warlock. Oof. Yep. Uh, you have advantage on wisdom, insight, and charisma intimidation checks when you wear this visage and you get word of the spirit. When you speak, you can direct your words to a creature of your choice within 60 feet of you so that only that creature can hear you. Or you can amplify your voice so that all creatures within 600 feet can hear you. And I like this. This is cool. It is cool. It's super interesting that this is like this really big package both of these features are really sort of big packages that all come only if you activate this astral thing Mm -hmm. so you've got to spend one key point to summon the arms then another key point as part of the same bonus action or later you could do it but you you know one more key point and now you get this visage and now you have all of the this whole package right so it's quite interesting yeah it's i created for cobalt press a sort of dragon themed wizard that used spell slots to power a mask, a, you know, a, a body. Uh, and then I did something with same similar with the Druid um, nice. that goes along these lines. And it goes back to the magic of Incarnum sort of feel. Do you remember that yeah. book for yeah. third edition mm-hmm. yeah, uh, third where edition. you have points that you augment yourself to have these different abilities. So I, I you know, it has a tradition in D and D that I like. So I I think it's cool. Uh, At 11th level, you get body of the astral self. When you have your astral arms and your visage summoned, you can also cause the body of your astral self to appear. It where you wear it like a suit of armor, basically, Mm -hmm. you determine its appearance, you gain the following benefits when it's on deflect energy when you take acid, fire, cold, lightning, force or thunder damage, you can use your reaction to deflect it. The damage is reduced by 1d10 plus your wisdom modifier. Uh, you can empower the arms on each of your turns. When you hit with your arms, you can uh, deal extra damage equal to the martial art die. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So so now even more payoff at level mm-hmm. 11, for, for, but it's all based on that grab bag, right? You've, you've got to... You've got to you got to pay the membership fee of the two key points, and now even more, <laughs> you're yep. like mecha warrioring up through the astral plane. Yeah, which is it's just interesting for a monk, you know, because yeah. I, you know, I I can I I dig that I can dig that mm-hmm. sort of uh, that sort of concept. And at level seventeen, you get the awakened astral self. Your connection is now complete to the astral self, allowing you to unleash its full potential. As a bonus action, you can spend five key points and summon the arms, the visage, private parts, and the body. Wait, did I guess it wrong? Of your astral self, oh. and awaken it for ten minutes. Um, 
when your astral self is fully awakened, you gain the following benefits. You gain a plus two bonus to your armor class. And whenever you use the extra attack feature to attack twice, you can instead attack three times if all the attacks are made with your astral arms. So you're basically turning into what was the Star Wars guy with all the arms, the robot-y sort of? Uh, General Grievous. Yeah, General Grievous. Uh, you're, you're now General Grievous. You can just sort of have all the arms and they're doing all the things. I wish I could do an impersonation of his voice because I always love the way he sounds when he's like cursing at Obi-Wan in the Clone Wars yeah. series. So, so there you go. That is the monk. Yeah, so five key points and you get uh, all these things. So it's a, it takes it from two to five, but uh, which isn't cheap. But at level 17, you have 17 key points. So you can do this three times and have two key left over other things. Mm -hmm. uh, really, really interesting. Um, another thing that's interesting here is we talked last time about all the optional uh, things. And one of the optional things for classes was around extra attacks. And none of that really works with this uh, subclass. Sure. So it's almost like they created subclasses that deliberately don't use the optional mm -hmm. features that they created, I guess, for older monks. It's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, I almost wish at this highest level there was a little more. Uh, maybe make the armor class a little better. Uh, I mean, it's good, but there are some level 17 things that are just off the charts wacky. Yeah. Uh, that I sort of wish this would be a little bit more. Hmm. But overall, I, I love the theme, and I love this idea of using key points to add to your own physical form. I think both the Way of Mercy and the Way of Astro Self were, were much stronger once I looked at the mechanic underpinnings than I, than I thought initially. When I first looked at it, I said, I don't know, I'm summoning these arms. And then I look at the strength of it and the way it will feel during play, and I'm like, okay. You know, as long as you can track what all these astral things do, mm -hmm. you'll feel great doing these things, right? And it's right. just about whether you can power it enough, but but it's pretty cool mm -hmm. stuff. Yep. So that is the way of the astral self monk. And we will then next week move on to the next uh, subclass and look at those. But for now, we are going to continue with Chapter 7 of... Our 2000 part series on Icewind Dale, <laughs> Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Only part 23. It's only part 23. I, I'm off only by 177. So <laughs> that's not, not, not too bad in my neck of the woods. No. So with chapter seven, we talked last week sort of about the overview of how to run this chapter in general. And now we're going to discuss some of the locations specifically and how they tie into uh, the overall story of the adventure and the overall story of what's happening in this buried Netherese city of Yithrin. Yeah. And um, the first thing that it, it drops on you once you've gotten through that sort of setup piece is the necropolis of Yithrin itself. And it gives you this great box text about coming in through this ice tunnel and seeing this city that's kind of tilted like a big disc, right? Because it's a flying city. It's like this big stone metal disc that's kind of a little bit tilted on its side, but it has gravity to keep you on no matter what. And it's some of it is, is entombed in ice from the big, huge cavern it's in, but it gives off magical light from various parts of itself. So, so you can see the whole thing. You can see these spires and you actually give out to your players a player map 
mm-hmm. and just kind of go like, this is what it is. And it's the art style. If you've been through a number of recent adventures or you're familiar with Will Doyle and his wife's uh, work, they create, I think they both work on the art mm-hmm. and it's just, it's really neat sort of 60s, 70s style that Stacy Allen and Will Doyle do. And it's just uh, really cool to look at, right? And so I, I love that as a start. Yeah. You know the art's good when they, when they say right in the text, we give you permission to photocopy this and hand to your players because we want to look good. And this map yeah. is really cool. Uh, I, I, I can't remember. I think the first time I saw Stacy and Will's art was uh, for like a one-page dungeon submission. And I just remember just looking at that going like, this is so beautiful. This is so great. Yeah. And then he did a number of epics. And, yeah. and and I think she did the art for that. And oh, it's just yeah. every time I see and it, and it's been in Tomb of Annihilation, it's just a really neat evocative style that feels sort of organic and, yeah. and strange and trippy, but, but futuristic. Yeah. And yeah. So I love that part of it. Um, now, one thing that you need to know right off the top about the exploration that's about to happen, because the idea is, hey, they've come in, they found the city, now the players have to go around and explore and figure mm-hmm. it out. Yep. Uh, but there's a little thing here, a bit of a maybe ticking clock, that if you stay too long, you will contact Arcane Blight. Mm-hmm. And this sort of ex- explains the death of sort of anybody human that's been here. Uh, every 12 hours, it's a DC-15 con check, or you contract Arcane Blight. This gives you the flaw, I don't trust anyone, and is fed by delusions, which you can sort of describe as DM. When you finish the long rest, you repeat the saving throw. If you succeed, you drop the DC for future saves by 1d6. If the DC reaches zero, you're now immune to it. Mm -hmm. But if, on the other hand, you fail three saves, you transform into a Nothic. (laughs) Which could put a uh, cramp on your adventuring style, not to mention the depth perception. Uh, so, so yeah, so this is something that it's not important to the story so much, although, you know, that it tells why there are Nothics everywhere down here that everyone has turned into, but it's something that you as the DM, depending on your party can turn the, the, the dial with, right? You can make it higher, make it lower DC, or you could do it more often or less often. And you can really make the characters feel like, oh boy, we need to we need to move through here. But it also goes back to one of the uh, things that this whole adventure is based on, which is the movie The Thing, right? Yeah, that sort of true. paranoia, and you you don't know who you can trust, and everyone could be infected by this monster. So right. we should we should. Uh, figure out the best way to handle this quickly yeah and some of the best parts which is what i would heavily suggest leaning into as a dm is that um we talk that talks about symptoms like hair loss clammy skin myopia and i think you know you want to really heavily lean into that to freak your players out and even if they can magic this away uh because greater restoration will remove it though it doesn't prevent further checks which is kind of cool um, but even if they can just periodically be keeping it at bay through magic, you know, just those those symptoms alone will, will mm-hmm. create a nice undertone that will freak them out. Yeah. Um, but it is a mechanic that duels a little bit against the what you're supposed to do, which is go through and enjoy all of this. And to force you to enjoy it, uh, there is this calling the called the right of the arcane octad. Mm-hmm. In that a force field surrounds the spire of Ariolathus that's in the very center which is where you want to get to the Mithalar. 
Um, so the Demulich can get in and out of it, Demulich Irialarthus, but you can't. To do that, you have to perform a ritual that I guess they made every arcane person do to prove that they knew what they were doing. I don't know why someone wouldn't just sit there watching from afar and copy it rather than having to go to all eight. But the idea is you have to go to the eight schools of magic and master their teaching uh, and come back. It's sort of a different take on the MacGuffin, you know, the, the nine keys yeah. or the whatever, right? Right. It's 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 a cool uh, sort of game quest mechanic uh, that different groups have a different tolerance for. Mm-hmm. So having to do these eight steps means you have to go to the eight towers. You have to actually find the line of this puzzle one of the eight lines uh, of the puzzle then you have to actually have the means to do the thing that the line of the puzzle tells you to do so it is an eight-step thing but you also have to go to eight places and then you may have to go elsewhere to find the trick to do the line so it it can go on you may uh have a group that is not up for that because that could take several sessions based on what you have to do in different locations in the in the ruins so be ready as the dm especially if you know your players are not going to put up with this sort of eight step process to shorten it to uh skip it completely if necessary uh to make it easier yeah um what is good that, that you know even if your group is sort of not into sort of doing the eight dances uh what is good is that these places are tend to be really cool mm-hmm. and so they can be a joy to discover they're also not really long right. so generally it, it hand waves you know walking through streets and going through buildings and you just sort of when you're on the top floor here's what plays out um, and I think that is is good because you want to just get to the action and sort of and, and feel that you understand this place, which is neat. Because initially, you know, your players, we know a lot as DMs because uh, there's a lot to know. But uh, but your players are going to be coming at this with great wonder. It is meant to feel like, um, you know, the alien movie that's in the ice or the thing where you're like, who were these people? What What were they doing here? What's going on? Um, so yeah, so I think it, it, it's, it, it, it works, it, it, but it, it has to be thought through, um, worth noting the various denizens that you have here. Um, you have the Demulich. This is found in that spire area Y19, but can be anywhere. And if we mm-hmm. recall from our conversation last time, the sort of instructions we have is it's going to watch you. It can't communicate with you when it detects that you're not a rescue party, it will attack you. Uh, you are not given sort of special tactics or preparations or as we've seen in other encounters, you know, that this is where it strikes and it makes use of this thing. It's just literally run the Demulich and it's just a Demulich. Demuliches have some pretty horrid powers, right? Like it frightens everybody and if you fail your save, you're zero hit points. So it certainly has some punch, but it only has 80 hit points. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's weird about this is that you could drop your Demulich on them. The party could just Nova it and be done with it in a round or two. And they might not realize, your players might not realize that this was a really significant creature. 
because it can't talk and it doesn't have this sort of plot wise connection. So I, that's a thing to think through. And I struggle with, you know, should there be books talking about this person or when it dies, its spirit manifests? I don't know, but it feels like there's just a real chance that this could be like ships passing in the night plot wise. You have no yeah. idea what you just did. Right. And there's no great mechanism for it to escape. Right. Uh, it can't teleport. It can't do anything like that. So you can't do sort of the hit and run, draw out the anticipation because it, it can fly pretty, it can fly at 30 feet, but it's very easy for characters now that they're getting to eighth, ninth, 10th level to, uh, to just follow along. Um, you also have as denizens, Nothics in various places. Then you have, uh, they used to be apprentice mages, but were transported through the arcane blight or transformed. Uh, you have the Magan who are mortal servants tirelessly performing their duties. They look sort of humanish, but they have weird skin tones. And so it's pretty easy for players to realize, okay, this is something else. Um, and they come in a variety of stats that tend to not be too hard. And a lot of the encounters where they show up, they might battle you because they see you as not belonging, but they're not hard fights. Though they're, they're fun creatures, I think, well-built. Yeah. Uh, and then we have some deadly living spells in a couple places right out <laughs> of Eberron right. Uh, that I think are put to very good use in this place and, they're, and are fun elements. And then you have those NPC factions we talked about last time. You might have Oriole running around here. You might have the arcane brotherhood and, and and it's really just up to you as dm to decide how to employ them and when they mm. are in theory searching this place just like you are it reminds me a lot of omu and tomb of the nine gods where right. you know the thans are looking for puzzle keys you're looking for them but but it's even less established i think omu was a little more easier for a dm to grasp how to use them right and they had a physical place on the map where you would stumble upon them uh, and, and it would tell you what would happen. It's, you know, they have X, you know, they or the Yuan T have X number of keys. And right. this is really more up to you um, to decide how to employ them, which is maybe, uh, maybe that's a positive for some DMs, but I think it makes it hard for others. Mm -hmm. Right. So as you explore the ruins, there's a number of locations, uh, and then in the center, there's the spire, which is, since there's a force field around it, you can pretty much assume that, hey, that's where we want to go. We have to bring down the force field. Uh, there's a lore table that allows you to dole out information about the city, which is very interesting in, in different bits. Um, if you have the Professor Orb with you, that's one source of possible uh, information. There's a few other sources that we'll go through as we go through each of the locations uh, or go through our favorite locations because we're not going to cover all of them. Uh, so as you're as you're DMing this, you, you've got several balls in the air. You've got the, the Demi-Lich, potentially Aureal, potentially the Arcane Brotherhood, um, either with you or working against you or both, depending on who, who you've interacted with. And so you're, you're doing all of that while you're exploring. Do you yeah, talk about, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say that, and this lore is another thing to keep in mind because it is very important that you don't, um, 
lose that ab ability. And, and I think this is something we also saw in Omu where, where the players are going to sort of want to just explore every room at first, every building. Let's find mm -hmm. loot. Let's find treasure. And they can find some like common magic items uh, or they can find lore. Um, and the lore is great, really interesting. And it, it does have some funny things. Like if you've heard about sort of how Harry Potter comments online, it has this one where by law, every mage was taught the prestidigitation cantrip and obliged to use it to keep the city clean which reminds me of that Twitter thing that, that the mages can just <laughs> magically make their poop go away, right? <laughs> yeah. Soil themselves while they're just walking around. Uh, I thought this was, there are a couple of sort of Easter eggy type things there that, that are that are pretty fun in the lore piece. So so it's important to give that to, to people, this lore, so mm -hmm. that the players are unraveling the mystery. And, and, and I think ideally your players gain a sense of understanding and mastery of this location as they're unlocking the, the eight uh, locations they need to the eight schools. And, and the eight schools reinforce that concept that this is a place of study, right? These are mages that this, this is a city of mages flying around doing research, right? Right. So there's going to be a lot more magic here and a lot more esoteric, strange, arcane things than you would see in in any other place uh, in the realms, supposedly. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about these factions, Sean. Mm -hmm. um, th this is this is, I think, some of the the toughest part when it comes to how to run them. You get some guidance, but not a ton. Um, the Arcane Brotherhood and Oriel sections were directed to to read them, but they appear near the end of the chapter. Mm -hmm. I tend to think they should be earlier because you really just need to read them up front. Right. Um, but either way, it's, you, you have to remember that they're there and refer to them. And you have to think through what your current reality is, right? Do you have the Professor Orb? Do you have Veline Harpel from the Arcane Brotherhood? Mm -hmm. She is, we're told she will generally be helpful. <laughs> Interestingly, if she leaves the party, she contracts the blight and becomes a Nothic. And then it's a bit like a movie scene, right? To create like, you know, oh, look, there she is hunched over. What is she looking for? And she turns around with this giant eye, right? It's just yeah. transformed. Um, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, she's generally helpful. Uh, Avarice could be with the party, who was from one of the 10 towns. Mm -hmm. um, she had, and, and, and what's really going to happen is she's going to somehow encounter you because she would not have been traveling with you. She would have caught up to you. She's traveling with her two gargoyles, her raven familiar, 20 cult fanatics, and 10 mountain goats. You have to have the mountain goats. Adventure. Yes. Got to have the goats. Uh, and Avarice claims a location called Skydock Spire and sends out cultists to search. And every time you explore, there's a 20% chance that some cultists are there. Um, she will not help the PCs if she knows that Veline is there because she's um, they're competing for sort of Arcane Brotherhood awesomeness. And she orders Veline to leave, and it's up to the party to decide whether she does or not. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't super say, it basically, it's sort of like, that's the threat. You know, Veline has to leave for me to help you, and I'll give you lore points if you agree. Right. It's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. Zan, if his yeah. simulacrum is real, could be there. That's right. kind of one person too many, I feel like. Um, right. Less less helpful than Valine, less dangerous than Avarice as the guidance are given. Right. I don't know. Um, and what they all want is they want Irialarthus's spellbook and items of power. And, and I think 
the best way maybe to use them, I don't know what your take is, but but is to focus on the spell book, which draws your attention to that central tower, draws mm -hmm. your attention to the story of the Demulich, and through them can be the vehicle that you make this Demulich matter in this story. Right. Yeah, if, if you need any motivation for the characters, that is one avenue that you could travel. If you haven't yet shut down the uh, Everlasting Rhyme, that could be a second avenue of a goal to place in front of your characters. If yeah. they, if they're happy with just finding random treasure and killing random monsters, then I guess you don't need a goal because uh, they're going to do it, do it all anyway. So it's just keeping in mind the story you've told so far will then uh, necessitate what you're going to present here if you want to keep that flow yeah. consistent. And, you know, one of the things that's possible is the party may never have met Avarice. True. So you don't have to use her, right? If they did not delve into the care and they did not meet her, they don't know who she is. It's just another Arcane Brotherhood person showing up. You don't have to use her if it doesn't help the story. Um, but if Veline is out of the picture, then it could be interesting to have another one show up so you keep that Arcane Brotherhood angle and it could be that vehicle by which you tell the information they don't have and push them in the right direction and give them some fun competition. Yeah. And making this even more convoluted or problematic, not only could you have three Arcane Brotherhood uh, people interacting with the PCs to try to get what they're after, you could have the the demi lich or real and the rest of the part rest of those arcane brotherhood people <laughs> and what the adventure doesn't tell you is how do they interact with each other yeah. and so that's how what you need to figure out if or if, if, yeah go ahead. it's or what Ariel arthas does right this demi lich right we all about how it's going to watch us what about you know Oriel shows up and, and Oriel. <laughs> With three frost giant skulls and six snow golems and six winter wolves, right? You imagine these factions showing. This is like a you'd see this walking around. Right. Uh, sends the, the these things in to kill anything they find. Shuts her shuts down the force field around the spire, which wait, what? And yeah. then uh, will murder any of Avarice's minions and turns them into cold white walkers. So, which if you can play this right, could be amazing, right? If like. You know Avarice is out there, but suddenly you see her team, and her team is no longer a bunch of cultists roaming around. They are cold white walkers. What happened to that? Um, and once the PCs have defeated most of Oriole's minions, she'll call out from atop the spire and demand they leave, and then start hunting them. Uh, if her three forms are defeated, the force field returns around the spire. But that means that they can get into it while it doesn't it's and what is Ariel Arthas doing all this time while right. Oriel takes his home it, it it we're not told it's really yeah. so you as DM I think have to choose and, and this is where I'd say that if you've if you have the right group and you've had a good time in those early chapters setting up their goals right like like if they were um, speakers for one of the towns and they built a business there and you sort of franchise rules and, and they care about the ten towns that's where these arcane brotherhood people could represent a very interesting threat because they could be a long lasting presence in the region as they have been historically so dealing with them 
could matter, right? If you right. could form an alliance of them and just keep them enough at bay, 10 towns and you would benefit. Uh, and that could be a reason why you work together. And, and depending on what the players are interested in and how, what they see their characters doing with these various factions, then that could work well as well. And could, I could see with, with some of the groups that I run, and you know, unfortunately I have really good players, I think those could be really interesting aspects. The book just doesn't tell us how to make that happen. Right. I mean, when the Arcane Brotherhood sees this Mithlar, they could say, you know what, we're going to set up a new branch, a whole city. We're going to take this place over and we're going to do experiments and use all this raw power to our own, uh, for our own gains. What do you think, folks? And yeah. any smart player would be like, uh, no. I'm going to murder you now is what <laughs> right. I think as a player character. Because yeah. I don't want the Arcane Brotherhood, a, a not nice group uh, nope. in here experimenting with this very powerful magic. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, how I would run it probably is the characters deal with the Arcane Brotherhood first as they're exploring, figure out how they're going to handle that. Then they have to deal with the Demi Lich. They get into the tower. Then Aurel shows up and the final showdown begins. That's probably the direction I would point yeah. my, my, uh, my groups. Yeah. You don't want to, I don't think having all power, all factions active at once is probably too much for all but the most, you know, octopus mental approach DMs that can truly keep all the plates spinning at all times and yeah. somehow allow their characters to enjoy that ride. It yep. can very easily be overwhelming or water down these parts. So I, I think I'm, I'm with you that introduce bits and pieces as they explore, make them exciting decisions, right? This Arcane Brotherhood person offers this deal let the players be smart and read what the deal is about, what the angles of it are, and make that decision as to whether to form an alliance or not. And right. now you play out those consequences as you explore as interesting sort of highlights to the exploration, because a lot of places don't have much, they're, they're neat, but they don't have like a beholder and a basilisk and a whatever. And so here's your source of foes if you want them. Yep. They can be these factions you said no to. And as you said, if Oral comes in towards the end, now it becomes the the crescendo of interesting things and what you have to figure out is well where do you use Ariel Arthas and all that probably before she shows up is probably better yep. um but once you've learned f first learn who Ariel Arthas is and why maybe through the Arcane Brotherhood then defeat the Demi Lich then Oral probably is the way to do it yep so let's talk really briefly about the different locations and some of the cool things that could happen just to keep everything in perspective here, yeah. the really important areas are those eight towers mm -hmm. that give the clues making the eight lined poem that tell you how to bring down the force field and enter the spire. Uh, so some of those are cooler than others, but I'm just, we're going to go back and forth, yeah. alternate about things we thought were cool. There's an area that is a, uh, basically a sports stadium, the chain lightning stadium. Awesome. So there, there's this sort of cool mini game you can play. Like apparently that even, you know, arch mages needed to watch some spectator sports. So think of dodge, Harry Potter. Uh... Yeah. Think of a game like dodgeball where you get shocked uh, if you get hit by the ball. And, <laughs> the and chain that's lightning stadium is the chain called? lightning stadium. Yes. Sponsored by chain lightning uh, corporation. It uh, it's it's a cool little mini game. Uh, basically, you you 
try to hit the opposition with the ball. If you do, they're out. And then when all members of a team are out, your team wins. Yeah, um, and, and you can choose to throw a ball through a sort of goalpost to charge it up higher, which will deal more damage or take out more players. Yeah. But if the players, the other side steals the ball, it's now a supercharged yeah. ball that can do more damage. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it is interesting. It's not the clearest sort of, even as a small game, which I was glad that they kept it simple, but even that simple game was a little confusing on how exactly to run it. Because if you do throw the ball through the the hoop or through the the uh, lightning rods, you you could lose it to the other right. team, which means now they have a supercharged dodgeball to hit you with. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to do that if you think you have a chance of losing. <laughs> and to see who controls the ball, you you make skill to, uh, ability checks. The problem is once if there's four people on your the other team and two people on your team it's the most successes controls the ball so the further along you go you have a lesser chance of catching up um so just think it through a little bit uh you might not want to use the rules exactly as written i would bump up the stakes to the point where like i want to be super cinematic i don't just want to make the same group skill check each time hmm. and uh i want I want there to be some real meat to this. Yeah, I don't think these wizards who deal in these deadly magic are just going to be happy with seeing somebody shocked by a ball, right? Or, or doing strength athletics, maybe. Right. Yeah. I. Yeah. Th there's going to be some soup. There's going to be some real risk to to this. Mm -hmm. This, uh, not just a few points of of uh, electric damage, a, lightning a fun damage. Variant would be make it more like controlling a sphere of annihilation, right? But exactly. Like a ball of lightning, but maybe it's more mental control. Yeah, it could be interesting. Yeah. Um, and maybe, yeah, a variety of checks lets more players participate. Yeah. So let's talk about what the first of the towers we're given is the Tower of Abjuration. Um, these are all really cool looking chiseled rune towers, blue light shining from the top. And if you go up to it, you find this enormous anvil that's being guarded by some imagin. Uh, these these uh, conjured beings or, or constructed magical beings, um, they will fight to defend it. There's also what's called a tomb tapper that can show up if you do things and attack you. Those are these sort of huge constructs that protect the city and react to intrusions. Um, and on this anvil, you can basically disjoin the magic of anything uh, that isn't an artifact. Um, and you will you have the opportunity to later bring an item here. Um, but kind of along lines of this puzzle we're talking about, when you look on the ceiling, you see in Draconic, it says, first shield thy heart with a wand from nether oak. And so that gives you a clue, which along with lore you can uncover, tells you that you need, you know, a rod of wood made from this type of material and must present this in order to get in. Yep. And, and you, you also have to learn what the order of these is so that you can yep. run through these little dance steps. Yeah, each of them says first, second, third, fourth. So once you learn, even if you learn them out of order, you know the order to put them in in the poem. So that's helpful. I love this area because of this amble of disjunction. Hey, DM, you accidentally get out a magic item that's running your campaign. Oh, well, they they enter. And the first thing that happens is that magic item just blows up. Hey, now you know that the amble of disjunction can uh, can get rid of magic items. That's good. It, it'll come in handy later. <laughs> yep. Um, then we have the prison, which I, this is just 
I, I just assume this is Will Doyle's and, and Stacey Allen's design because they have such evil, clever minds. Like when I put in a doppelganger, it would just be like, oh, okay, a doppelganger with a fun history. But literally, it's you walk in and you see this operating torture type room with like leather straps that are fastened, suggesting an invisible creature is there. Yep. And there's this whole thing about how it's in suspended animation through a sequester spell, and it's a doppelganger. So if you dispel it, now you see it visible, but now it can be its doppelganger doing its things. It's not actually antagonistic, so it can work, but uh, but it's really kind of fun and a neat way to, to figure out how to introduce an inhabitant to this part. Yep, and that doppelganger knows all the lore that you need to uh, transfer to your characters. So it's another good wild card to use uh, if necessary. Uh, area Y9 is the library. There is an Arcanaloth named Scrivenscry who is looking for a specific book. And when the characters enter, he assumes that they are the librarians and he demands that they help him find this book. And he is being helped by a five foot tall awakened albino penguin named Kingsport. Uh, <laughs> and so poor Kingsport is, is abused by Scrivenscry. So the characters, you know, and our Kanaloth is nothing to sneeze at. It's, it's a relatively powerful being. So the characters can use a variety of ways to, get the Arcanaloth, get him his book or get him out of there, and then maybe even save Kingsport in the process. Yeah, and, and of course you can find a lot of lore there. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a neat, interesting encounter where your players really have a lot of uh, ability to do things. You have an Arboretum, which is where you can get this willow branch that you need, the nether oak. Uh, but of course the nether oak is a treant, so nothing so simple. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to, to just grab the the wood you need i like that angle on it yeah i i read this and i'm like it's the whomping willow from harry potter because uh -huh. uh, he's disgruntled he's angry he's not ready to give up any of his branches that you need in order yeah. to get to the tower so good luck uh handling that uh tower 11 or y11 is the tower of divination where you must use an orb of divination to get the message that was written on the wall but the wall is crumbled God. and now this this is this is same thing happens in a couple of places where the message they need they may have figured out by now okay these towers hold these messages cool you go to the tower and the message is not there and mm -hmm. unless the group is very forward thinking and you know there are smart groups that just aren't into the puzzly bits and this takes a little bit of figuring to say oh the tower is destroyed how can we find it? Oh, here's this orb of divination. This can tell me what the message was. Uh, yeah. So you may need to drop some clues. They may need to go here, come back later once they figure out that, oh, this last message we need was here. What do we do? Then they'll think about it a little deeper. And, and I like the design wise, you know, it's not just like, oh, find the message, interpret it, but these kinds of things. And, and this is made all the more interesting in that this room has a giant sort of bowl of eyeballs and to use this, which is the orb. And to use this orb, you put your hands on it, you speak the name of an object or person, and you're going to see it as a vision. But 
you must then make a DC 20 constitution saving throw. And if you fail, one of your eyes is magically plucked out of its socket and teleported inside the orb and because one of the things in there and you take 10 points of damage. Uh, so, you know, there are only so many times you want to use this thing. And boy, is that a clever way to keep players from abusing this item. Yeah, ab absolutely. Th that's the first thing I read. Oh, boy, here comes an item that they're just going to. Oh, OK. DC 20, you say. All right. Maybe not. Because uh, at, at that level, you're not casting any sort of regeneration yet. So uh, that's a that's a whole thing. Area 12, the Wellspring of Answers. Another place where you can get lore, there is a well. And if you sit on a bench near the well and you commune with the well, you start getting voices and you can ask questions, which is really cool. What is causing this tele, uh, telepathic uh, communication? It's the telepathic pentacle. Basically, these people got together and said, we're going to create a group conscious between us. And that went wrong. And they became... <laughs> basically a five-headed humanoid creature that people didn't want to be around because it was horrible. So they, they put it in a well and hid it down there, but let people come in, communicate yeah. with it telepathically. So just another really cool, gruesome, fun. Uh, the stats are basically a Hydra, uh, but with a climb speed and human yeah. heads and, it, and it's down in the well and so as long as you don't disturb it and you just meditate with it it's all good but if you mess with it uh, it awakens and you got to deal yeah. uh, it's lovely it's a great again another way that like you, you know if the players are hitting a wall their characters can get answers to this mechanic but they can't use abuse it too much or this is what's going to happen and it, it's lovely yep there um, was a there was a, a theater where it's almost like a titanic situation there was there was a concert going on but as the city was falling, the concert, uh, the concert musicians kept playing as the city went down. And when they died, when the, the city hit the ground, they were very upset that they could not finish their piece. So they are held in spectral form, essentially, inside their, their decayed corpses. And if you pick up the baton, the conductor's baton, they all, all the specters in the body spring to existence and are ready to finish their their piece so you can play it out uh and i i thought it was just cool there there's no mechan game mechanical you can get inspiration if you do it you know there's no but it's just a really neat role-playing opportunity i just want to shout out to y13 uh bazaar of the bazaar which is yep. the marketplace but that is a, a name of a column that was popular in dungeon magazine dragon magazine and so just uh, you know there are lots of little easter eggs for mm -hmm. horror movies for dnd's history you, you name it that are thrown into this place and that was a lot of fun to read yep now right in the middle of all of the other locations they put the spire uh so you can't get into the spire until you go to the, all these other locations but the spire itself is sort of delved into right in the middle i just i wish layout wise they would have put the spire at the end because it yeah. it's it's an extra it has you know 20 some uh locations on its own or close to 20 so uh i wanted to finish the other necropolis yeah. locations first so also there is the methylar which is the thing that puts the uh, force field around the spire. And if you mess with the Mithalar, the Demi-Lich comes down to talk to you because, or not, not talk to you, to attack you, because it doesn't want you uh, messing with them. Uh, 
and there's the obelisk. We talked in the previous episode about this is where the obelisk was supposed to help protect the city and take you back in time if there was a problem. So if you defeat the Demilich, uh, it had a staff of power and the staff of power can empower the obelisk. And if your players are like mine, if you give them something to do, they're dang well going to do it. And in this case, doing it is touching the obelisk with the rod or the staff of power. And if they put 10 charges of the staff into the obelisk, they go back, they go back, uh, unaged 10 years hey cool uh the staff breaks so they take all that damage from a broken staff and uh do you want to break the staff of power and go back in time because this is how you break a staff of power and go back in time uh you go back to before the city fell uh back before Waterdeep was a city uh, and there you go so unless you actually want your campaign to do this you might want to temper that with some arcana checks to let them know what they're getting into if they do this. It, it's really very fascinating. There are a number of things here that are all fascinating. I mean, how it was built and designed is, is really interesting to me um, because this isn't like normal adventures where at the end there's the culmination of this ritual you must stop or there's this enemy that's about to do this thing um you know whether or you or the enemy is summoned forth to be in response to what you've done uh we see that in tomb of annihilation we see that with tiamat emerging from the well you know any of these adventures tend to have sort of this big crescendo moment that builds this is not like that mm -hmm. you can uh go through this spire of Irilarthus, perhaps having defeated Irilarthus several play sessions ago um, and so it might be much more exploration and we find these various items, like the items of power are here, and, and the Demi-Lich does not carry them around because it doesn't, can't manipulate them. Um, and so then you have these decisions of what to do with it, and there are a number of things to interact with. You have the obelisk, and the obelisk is interesting because this is sort of the culmination of obelisks appearing in various works. Um, I still think it's probably just that fans seem to draw a line between dots and, and therefore wizards said, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll make this into a thing. But here we at long last get the quote unquote secret of the obelisks as a little sidebar um, telling us that this society of spellcasters called the Weavers created these uh, as a way of sort of a, a security network that if things went really poorly, you could undo reality to a, to a save point, basically. Yeah. Um, and that would allow you to counteract calamitous spells or cataclysmic events. Um, and Vecna stole one, um, used the knowledge to create new ones. Netherese then learned how to create these based on that knowledge. Um, and so for whatever reason, I guess they put one on this vessel and somehow didn't think to use it when they were crashing. Yeah. Or after. Or after. Yeah. Right. So that's a little weird, but yeah, but you find this obelisk and you find information that sort of suggests using the staff of power in this manner, but it doesn't tell you at all what it does. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very unlikely you would, un unless you cast some spells, which boy, you hope the players do, 
they won't know what they're doing when they do this thing <laughs> if they break it. Right. And not only do you get the retributive strike, so there's a ton of damage to deal with, uh, but if you're not killed, you become 10 years younger and you go to the end of the adventure. Yeah. And to the conclusion uh, that is for you having gone into the past and undone all of time for everyone. I mean, right. you've gone back in time, but, and, and, and I think we said this in the previous show, but now what happens is you basically tell your, you can play out, it gives you information to play out your players meeting with the live Irilarthus and all of the other mages. I mean, they're gonna be vastly underpowered compared to a city of mages who will sort of say, what were you doing? What happened? And, and the, I think the obelisk is now broken and they'll, so they'll know that they did this. And you, when you tell them, Hey, here's what happened to you guys. They'll thank you, give you a skyship, and send you on your way. And you're now in an era of Forgotten Realms before even Waterdeep was settled. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really weird conclusion unless yeah. you really want to play out that era with nothing to go on. Right. That that's that's the thing, right? It's this is that's super cool. Right. I want to run that campaign, but for I me. Don't. I'll be honest. Right. I don't. Well, well, for just for me, right? That that's the thing. Not everyone's going to want to run that campaign because there's no material to run that campaign. Now, if the next thing that comes out from Wizards or hey, DM's Guild, here's a whole series of adventures on playing in the Forgotten Realms pre-Waterdeep settlement, right? Pre-Netherese uh, Empire. Then cool, but as the DM, unless you want to run that, you're going to want to make sure your players know what's going on. And then even yeah. then they might do it. My players would, I know. They don't even want to play that sort of campaign and they would do it because there's something there. <laughs> you have to do it and see what happens. It's just the way it is. Then the other thing that's interesting, and I, I think this is a little, you know, I think this chapter has things that I do a lot in design where, where I, I do a little too much. And then my editor kind of, you know, or developer goes, you need to take one of these things away and crush it. It's too much. And you have your obelisk, which is one thing. And then you have your spire yep. or your spindle, uh, which is in the stasis chamber. And the spindle is actually the thing that the netheries found in the, um, in the ocean, right. in the sea of moving ice. And that is what caused the city to plummet. And so this has the ability um, that if you mess with it, you can cause it to um, suppress magic throughout the city. And interestingly, one of the things it does is it causes the floating chamber above Skydock Spire, which is where your uh, avarice might be, to crash into the ground, pulverizing it. Um, and, and I sort of think like, I don't know why that wasn't just the ob obelisk. Like, why did we need two of these things? Yeah, yeah. Like, and and then, it might factually make sense. It's sort right. of like more than. And you have to, you know, magic is what keeps this whole city going, right? This Mithalar. Uh, so not only, I mean, you use that spindle uh, to stop magic. The first thing that's happening is you're falling all the way to the bottom of this chamber because you're you're standing at a 45 degree angle. Then the only thing that's keeping you on is this magical uh, artificial gravity. So and then things go you know more badly from there. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think that's the to me the toughest part. We already had the tough part of dealing with the various factions and and the demulage and things, but but now you have the what are you doing with the spindle and how does that play out? What do you do with the obelisk, which may just be a one-way street off? Um, then we also have the treasure that you find um, in the 
uh, is it in the library that we find it? We find the spell of the comet, which is a pretty interesting <laughs> spell that creates right. a 50 foot deep, 500 foot radius crater on impact. Deals 30 to 10 force damage to everything in that 500 foot radius. Uh, so this is a scroll that you can use. So I guess you could use that to maybe destroy the city if you need to. It's one way right. to nuke it from orbit. And then um, last week we talked about the other scroll you could find. <laughs> right. So you can find, it's, yeah, it's in the same location, right? I believe. Yeah. You you find the scroll of Tarask summoning. Yeah. And this is another one where unless your players cast like legend lore or something like, you know, use some sort of ability like this divinations to, to, to really understand what they're doing, which hopefully they do. But I mean, like you said, Sean, a lot of players, they're just like, Hey, let's, you know, let's do it. And I can see a lot. I think a lot of players, if they're metagaming, wouldn't expect this kind of thing that, Oh, we're going to travel them back in time, not for 10 minutes in a little time bubble, but permanently yeah, right yeah, or yeah. we're going to scroll let's summon the terrace because of course what it's going to do is destroy this location cool let's nuke it from orbit but no when you learn what happens it's like the de the terrace shows up it tears this place up then it goes to 10 towns tears yeah. it up and then starts working down the sword coast yep. and then it's then it just says thanks for playing this adventure and you're yeah. <laughs> kidding me and, and we're, we're nowhere near at the power level to kill right, your ass and we're ninth level so yeah it's uh it's it's super fun you just have to curate the fun that's all right you as the we, dm we yeah. hear that the professor orb knows all about terrasque lore loves terrasques and so it can tell you all about the monster but it doesn't tell you that the <laughs> monster is going to specifically do the things it's going to do and i and sure. i think it should right like i mean because yeah. I, I don't, and nobody who, well, not nobody, but most players knowing if they knew what is going to happen would probably not do a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and that's my worry about these pieces, these elements being an adventure. These aren't hard choices between A or B in order to accomplish a goal. They're almost traps and they're big mm -hmm. plot traps and mm -hmm. could feel that way to your players. So you really want to be careful about how you dole out information around them. Yep. Uh, I think you need to, through an NPC, through Professor Orp, through something, say, you need to really learn about this. This is not insignificant magic. This could have big implications. And then the players can do what they want to do, and they get that ending they want. But Yep. Yeah. Whew. So that is uh, the lost city of Yithrin in, in a nutshell, in a very large, nut, <laughs> dangerous, yeah. strange nutshell. So I think we're going to want to come back, Sean, with uh, some guests and yeah. talk through, uh, you know, not just everybody's heard the two of us think through this, but we want to talk to some other folks who've run a variety of adventures and see what their takes are on this. Um, because it, it's a it's a very fascinating adventure, right? It has some just amazing, beautiful pieces, but then it has these larger themes that struggle at times. And so it, it, it takes a lot to digest it in. Like I, I think we were saying mm -hmm. earlier, this feels like the kind of campaign that you run it once. And then when you if you ran it again, you'd be like, okay, now I know what I want to do with this. Right. Or I have another idea. Maybe let's go down this other path because I've already traveled this path. So yeah, it's a... Uh... It, it's uh, I, it's an adventure. I'm glad I'm playing instead of DMing uh, for this for this first time through. So, 
Yeah, I will for sure run this, but um, you know, I will I will be doing a lot to it, and I've been having fun enjoying various uh, live play streams to see how players do things. Often, I've seen a lot of pulling punches. Is I think the main thing I've seen. Yeah. Zeroing in on action, pulling punches is how I'd, I'd summarize what I've seen, uh, <laughs> including by authors of, of sections of it, which is kind of fun to see. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, that is our show for this week. Thank you so much to our listeners and thank you to our patrons who are keeping the lights on for us. And for Teos, that is a literal uh, thing at this point. So if you would like to be a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP, or you can share our links on social media. That would help us uh, grow and expand the gospel of mastering dungeons. So Teos, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at AlphaStream on Twitter. Hit me up with all your thoughts on Rhyme and how it uh, is playing at your table. Uh, you, I will be on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com and my blog, alphastream.org. Mm -hmm. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or those forums that Teos just mentioned. And you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at MasteringDND. &D. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So Teos, now that we have gotten through the last chapter of Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, what should we do now? Uh, it's time for summer, Sean. Oh, you are talking. You are talking my language right now. <laughs> it is time for summer. Summer, uh, open air. I'm going to go kill 12 inches of snow. <laughs> Happy shoveling. Happy shoveling.